Thank you for joining us today on two topics that you probably address daily, but can lead to claims if not addressed properly. Five considerations when filling out the residential purchase agreement and properly handling dual agency. I'm Laura Prouse with Crest Insurance Services. Today, we welcome attorney Mark Carlson from the Carlson Law Group. Mark has been defending real estate agents since 1993 and has worked with Crest for over 20 years as a founding member of our legal panel. Along with Mark, we also have Dave Miller, Regional Vice President with Fidelity National Home Warranty. Dave manages the Crest Advantage Home Warranty Program, which ties into Crest's E&O insurance. We have a lot to cover, so I'll hand it off to you, Dave. Oh, thanks, Laura. Um, two really good topics today. Obviously, the, the RPA is, is probably the most used form in a real estate transaction, but unfortunately, it's also where a lot of litigation can, uh, can come up down the road. So um, happy to have Mark back with us for our fourth installment here um, in our webinar series and um, want to get started. Mark, with regards to the RPA, what are, I don't want to say a list of top five because that would insinuate that six through 20 are not as important, but give us five considerations that uh, real estate professionals um, need to consider when, when filling out the RPA. Well, like any um, house, right, the, it all starts with a, a good foundation. And so uh, what I uh, constantly have to remind uh, agents so when I do seminars in person back way back when, uh, you know, is, is just the simple things like filling out the, the contract and the, and the uh, if there are counters uh, completely, uh, you, you know, so often I see the financing terms being left blank. Uh, and then, of course, if there's a problem and somebody wants to get out of it, the buyer wants to get out saying, I didn't get the loan I wanted, uh, then, but then there's no term. So then the, the fault then falls to the agents for, for not drafting a, a clear contract. Uh, the, just the other week, I had a, a seller uh, retain me to, to help evaluate offers, and, and uh, it was a very substantial property uh, uh, sort of north of uh, or in the Beverly Hills area. Uh, and there were... 13 or 14 offers, something like that. And uh, these are all from, they were all from the, 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 the Beverly Hills uh, A-list of, of real estate uh, agents. Uh, and without naming any names, uh, of those you know, 14 or so offers, there were only uh, one or two uh, that even had all the, uh, you know, the, the, the paragraph there that lists all the additional documents that are going to be attached. And one of them, that, the, that property was held in a trust uh, and only one of them uh, had that the uh, trust advisory was to be attached. So just little things like that, that, that um, you know, don't really create any problems in a transaction. But if other problems arise, uh, then without the, the agents filling out the, the contracts completely, it just makes it look sloppy. So it's hard to, it's hard to justify, uh, you know, your actions elsewhere, when, you know, when basic things like filling out the, the offer isn't, uh, isn't done properly. I had a counter, or I'm sorry, an option contract many years ago uh, where uh, there was no indication of whether the option money was to go to the purchase price. Uh, the, it just, everything about the option was just incomplete. It was just, okay, well, at this time, we'll give you an option. Uh, and of course, the agents got sued because the buyer tried to exercise the option and the agent or the seller tried to avoid it. So uh, just starting with a good foundation, filling out everything completely and fully and clearly uh, is, is uh, you know, I would say step one. Perfect. How about services and stuff like that? Pest control, escrow, title, home warranty, uh, home inspection. Yeah, so in this market, and, you know, it may change if the market's softened, but in this market, you see 
selling agents trying to to endear their offer to the listing agent by you know saying seller's choice uh, and, and um, uh, not putting something in you know and I think most sellers probably don't uh, care about service providers if they do they'll just counter uh, but it's difficult you know I think when you give control right out of the chute so I would say even in a strong market like this that that I would have the buyers, uh, use uh, service providers, title escrow that they know and, and trust uh, uh, and put that in the contract. I mean, I've, I've had a lot of uh, cases here, especially with uh, in the last nine months with COVID where, you know, there, if there's a broker escrow from the listing side, uh, now the buyer's trying to get their deposit back. And, you know, the, the escrow is favored, the broker owned escrow is favoring the listing agent and the seller side. And, you know, it becomes, uh, it becomes a disadvantage to the buyer where the buyer, you know, has the ability to, to put that in uh, on the, uh, at the first, uh, first stroke, so to speak. Now it was a hot topic a couple of years ago, but I know agents were cautious and were actually being advised by the risk management attorneys to make sure you put down at least three or four uh, recommendations and making the buyers and sellers pick their services and could, you know, they could possibly get in trouble for saying, I want only ABC escrow or whatever. Is that still a big issue? So I think when it comes to inspections, if you're going to give a list of inspectors, uh, whether it be the home inspector or, uh, you know, a, a termite or a roofer or, you know, septic, if that comes up in a deal, that's when I think it's smart for, for agents to say, okay, here's a list of vendors that our clients have had good success with uh, so that you're not, you know, if, if they don't do a good, uh, a proper inspection, then you don't have sort of a negligent referral kind of argument. But when it comes to escrow and title um, uh, and home warranty, uh, I'm not that concerned. Uh, I, I would, I think it'd be better for the, uh, certainly the agent could, the selling agent could have a conversation with the buyer. Hey, is there any, are there any escrow companies that you like? Uh, but I, I, I think that, you know, just putting one in there, and the offer is, is uh, you know, is okay with respect to those types of service providers. Excellent. Now we've had a, a webinar before on property management and tenants, and we've already gone over a lot of that stuff. Talk about tenants in possession. Well, right now, uh, okay. you know, in 2020 with COVID, <clears throat> tenants in possession is a huge deal because of all the eviction moratoriums. And I would say that on offers uh, uh, that are going on now, even though, uh, the the state moratorium is is currently scheduled here you know mid December 2020 it's supposed to to end uh, in about 45 days uh, at the end of uh, January but that may change uh, and as an agent you don't know if it's going to change so I would be very careful about uh, and, and urge all agents and have been throughout this year to uh, have the buyers and sellers go talk to attorneys uh, if there are tenants in possession. And get and get direction from the principals as to whether uh, the buyer is going to take the property with the tenants in possession, uh, or whether the seller is going to try to uh, evict or, or entice the uh, the tenants to leave uh, so that the property can be uh, delivered vacant. Um, and it's <clears throat> um, it would be a mistake for an agent just to assume that it's not going to be a problem to getting the tenants out during an escrow period, even if they provide for a longer escrow, because uh, nobody knows right now when, when tenants are ultimately going to be able to be evicted. Perfect. Now at this time of taping, the, uh, the inventory is still very low. I think the unsold inventory index is 2.1 months, which is ridiculous. So obviously, and you just talked on a little bit, uh, counter offers, how does that tie into the RPA? What's important when you have counter offers? 
Well, firstly, if it's a multiple counter in this market, <clears throat> you know, where it's uh, it's so hot, that's it seems that it's pretty common. And, and unfortunately, we see uh, very um, uh, or more frequently than we would like, uh, you know, there, uh, an error where the multiple counter box isn't checked. Uh, and then you get two acceptances and now you've sold the property twice because you uh, failed to put in a multiple counter. Uh, there, <clears throat> there's always this urge to get the highest price uh, and to use some sharp negotiating practice like you know counter with your highest and best. Uh, and I think that's dangerous also because in California, <clears throat> the, the two essential, well, three essential terms are the identity of the property, uh, the identity of the principles uh, and the purchase price. Uh, the the uh, courts um, can, can imply every other reasonable term, uh, but those are the three uh, things that have to be in a contract for it to be enforceable. Uh, and and the, uh, the, the, the California RPA, or the, CA, the CAR RPA uh, has what's called a uh, uh, integration clause, which, which means that all of the terms of the, of the contract are contained within the four corners of the document, that you can't look outside uh, the, the contract to figure anything else out. So when you say highest and best, uh, you, you don't know where that's what, where, where to find that, uh, that number. Uh, and if you've got multiple counters or the acceptance that come back or another counter that comes back, uh, it just creates a problem because you can't look at it from document to document and, and, and track the, uh, the price terms. Uh, so I prefer, you know, just having, having or recommending to agents that they make it clear counter with an actual number uh, and then see where see where it goes. Uh, if you counter at a certain number and you get multiple acceptance, you can always call them back up and say, you know what, <clears throat> um, I've got multiple counters at my counter price, so let's do it again. Right. And you've talked to me in the past about something uh, a theory called a mirror image rule. Can you explain that to us? So, on California has, has a, a mirror image rule when it comes to contract formation, and what that means is that the acceptance has to be a mirror image of the offer. So if I have an offer that comes in and I like everything about the offer, except for the, uh, the buyer wants 45 days and I, the seller would like to have 30 days. So if I scratch out, just interlineate, you know, uh, uh, 30 and, and cross out the 45, uh, that actually is, it con it constitutes a counter uh, that requires separate acceptance. And so we see that, you know, uh, quite often where there's just minor, minor little terms and they say, oh, well, just change it and, and initial. It actually requires separate acceptance. <clears throat> and then, of course, if there's a problem down the road, uh, then maybe that little handwritten change, you know, becomes uh, an issue as to whether a, a contract is enforceable or not. Perfect. Anything else you can think of on uh, the RPA there? I think we covered five really good things. Any, uh, anything? Yeah, so I think those that's really the, the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of, you know, formation. Uh, of course, you know, we can uh, save this for another topic, but <clears throat> performance is another issue where, you know, you have to be available. You have to calendar everything uh, as an agent so that you don't miss deadlines. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that's sort of the the you know, the roof to the foundation or to the house that we've got on this good contract formation, but we can, uh, that probably is best served for another installment uh, as to, you know, being, being available and diligent when it comes to contract performance. Perfect. Well, let's jump into a dual agency. Obviously with uh, the market the way it is right now, it's hard enough for a real estate professional to even get a listing or a buyers uh, to the table. And, and when they are, uh, when they have the opportunity to be the both listing agent and the uh, the buyer's agent, 
it can be uh, lucrative with uh, commissions that can also be very dangerous. And correct me if I'm wrong, I would had learned over the years that dual agencies only uh, allowed in about six different states. Uh, most other states, you have to have a real estate attorney handle the other side. Is that still true? Uh, you know, I don't have a list of the number of states where there's dual agency. Um, uh, you know, I, it, it is true that in some some other jurisdictions that uh, dual agency uh, isn't allowed. Uh, the, but I think in that kind of circumstance, I think you're uh, referring to uh, attorney closings, where in some in, in a lot of states that uh, uh, attorneys actually handle the closing. They don't use escrow companies like we do here in, in California. Perfect. I believe that's what that's, I believe that's exactly what I was referring to. So run us through some of the uh, the considerations, I guess, if you will, uh, for uh, for folks that are going to be double ending a deal. So the uh, dual agency is allowable, of course. We all know that. Uh, so long as there are two things: that there's disclosure and there's confirmation. Uh, and so the confirmation is done uh, on the RPA, you know, that's at the end of the contract where you write in the broker's name, not the agent's name. They gotta be careful on, uh, on that. Uh, and then the uh, disclosure is via the, uh, the, the agency disclosure form. And so when we see errors in this, uh, we see that people just forget about the disclosure form where they lose it or they forget to get the signature on the, on the disclosure form. Uh, and then, as I alluded to a second ago, on the confirmation uh, within the RPA, the agent writes down their name, not their individual name, not the company name. And so the problem is that there's one pesky case uh, that suggests that if there's an undisclosed dual agency, that either principal can avoid the contract even after it's closed. And so you can imagine the kind of uh, havoc that would wreak uh, if you had a uh, if you had a, a, a buyer or seller after a deal was closed saying, hey, there was an undisclosed, undisclosed dual agency because you forgot to send me the disclosure form and I want to unwind this deal. Uh, you know, that would be that would be a very expensive case to defend and, of course, to resolve. Uh, and it's it's not like a, um, you know, close enough in horseshoes, horseshoes and hand grenades. If you don't do it right. Uh, then you don't, you, you, then it's an undisclosed dual agency. So the, the, the law is pretty clear on that point. Perfect. What about if a, a dispute arises and I'm the listing agent and I represent the buyers, you know, I have to, to, to be able to relay that concern to the other party, but then I'm also representing the other party. I mean, it just sounds like a mess. What do I do if something arises? Yeah, so like death and taxes, the only other thing that's certain uh, in life is that uh, real estate licensees like to be helpful, uh, and they're typically overly helpful, and that gets them into, into problems. So when a dispute arises uh, and there's and the agent is is dual, uh, then there's a there's a, a tremendous uh, there's tremendous pressure for the agent to try to make the the dispute go away, and so you know with good intentions, uh, I think. Uh, you see agents trying to, you know, persuade one side or the other that their position is not right. Uh, or if one, one side clearly is, is, is not just the seller says, I don't want to sell uh, and breach and wants to breach the contract. <clears throat> you know, you see the agent really putting pressure on the, on the listing agent. And so when you're a fiduciary to both, you can't take positions uh, that are contrary to the interests of either side. So you have to essentially be a messenger when there's a dispute between the, the, the buyer and the seller. 
buyer wants this seller um, what would you like to do well i want to do this now if this if the seller wants to do something that doesn't seem to be in their best interest you know it certainly is is appropriate and uh and proper for an for an agent to say well if you do that then here are the consequences to your actions so let me know what you'd like to do but really you know that that's that's the 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 limit to what an agent can do to try to resolve a dispute and what i always recommend is uh, if you if there's an issue uh, that um, just is getting to be really uh, hairy, uh, then the agents uh, should talk to a manager within the office and see if maybe another agent within the office uh, is available to step in on one side or the other. Try to uh, make it clear that there's um, no uh, betrayal of confidences, you know, via the one agent. Because if, if agent A is having is only conversing with seller, and agent B is only conversing uh, with the buyer, uh, then you know there can't be the argument that that confidences were betrayed. Now, is your recommendation that only if there starts to be a feud, they should bring in another agent, or should they actually bring them earlier before there's even an issue? Out of trouble. Well, you know, I don't want to be, uh, you know, chicken little um, and say in every instance where there's a dispute, I think that just, you know, uh, um, I would certainly talk to a manager if there's a dispute, I'd get to a manager and, and uh, 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 let them let he or she know what's happening. Uh, and that way you have another, you know, set of eyes on, on the transaction. Uh, but I don't know that getting another agent in, involved because it obviously is complicated because now you got to worry about commission and you got to, you know, get the, the, the parties to agree. Um, and so I think, you know, if there's a minor issue, I wouldn't think that it would be necessary, but you know, they just, they just, they just need to use their own experience and, and reliance upon the manager and, and broker's experience as to when someone else needs to step in. Perfect. Now you just, we were talking about fiduciary a few minutes ago, obviously fiduciary duty is, is the highest, um, that a, an agent can have with a client. You've been in many courtrooms before. What are judges feeling and, and temperature when they look at an agent and say, you had a fiduciary to this side and that side? How is that really possible? Is it on the county or the judge? I mean, what's, what's their... Oh, so jurors, uh, unfortunately, um, having tried, you know, the 20 some odd cases uh, before juries to verdict, uh, the... <clears throat> They think that agents get paid too much money for what they do, uh, and often you'll have uh, jurors that uh, that uh, have never bought a house, so they have no idea what the process is, but they still have this concept that you know an, an agent is supposed to you know almost be a guarantor that the transaction goes you know without a problem, uh, and so you know they, they don't see the 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 fifty showings uh, to to you know the Joneses before the Joneses decide they want to buy a house and all the all the extra time you know that they, that agents put in to try to market property uh, you know all they see is hey well you wrote an offer and you got a great big check and so you know you all you are trying to do by being a dual agent is is uh, jam the escrow close so that you could get paid you know on both sides uh, so that that's the uh, that's where the extra risk is because the uh, the, you know, the, the, it's an unlevel playing field in front of a, uh, in front of a jury, um, uh, for real estate, uh, agents. Excellent. Anything that you'd like to circle back on with, uh, regards to dual agency or ad before we close out that topic? The one, one analogy I like to give, uh, with respect to, uh, uh fiduciary duty, 
Uh, and and um, I'm going to date myself here, but for those uh, who see this and can remember the I Spy uh, cartoons, where you have the uh, you know the white uh, uh, wizard, I guess, and the uh, and the the black wizard. So that's what jurors are trying to figure out. They're trying to say, okay, who's got the white hat on? Who's got the black hat on? Uh, and you know, it's they they watch all these uh, uh, legal shows on TV, and they're expecting a Perry Mason moment at any. And then when it doesn't come, they're like, well, okay, who's the bad guy? And so when you're a, when you're a fiduciary, you got to be thinking about what you do uh, is whether it's going to be viewed by the jury as as you having a white hat on or you having a black hat on. And and you know, if look look at uh, how a jury would. Uh, would consider your actions, you know, uh, retrospectively. Uh, and if you, if you have the presence of mind to think, okay, I'm going to do this. And how does that look to the outside looking in? Uh, then I think you're going to, you know, uh, be more cognizant of your potential pitfalls uh, as a fiduciary on certain issues. Perfect. Excellent information on the RPA and dual agency. Mark, appreciate the time today as always. Uh, Laura, back to you. <laughs> Um, I just want to say thank you to both of you. It's always very, very informative. Um, always love hearing the information, even if I know it, I think it's valuable to hear it again. So thank you both. Um, and to everybody who's watching, thank you for watching. A copy of this webinar is available on the Crest Insurance homepage if you look under the Claim Prevent Blog tab. And I guess we'll reconvene um, in a few weeks and we'll do another webinar together. Super, looking forward to it. Great, thank you both. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, bye-bye.